You're listening to the Third Base Dugout, presented by Dorm Room Sports. Welcome back, everybody, to episode four of the Third Base Dugout. I'm Deer alongside Shelly, and we have a guest on today, which we have been searching for guests for a while now, and we have found three in a row that are going to be awesome interviews. We interviewed Pitching Ninja last week. This week, we've got on Bailey from Foolish Baseball. And Bailey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Living life. Trying to find stuff to do during this quarantine. Trying to fill that baseball void in my life right now. I think we all are. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I for me personally, it's about you know, at this time, I almost feel obligated to pump out more content, more of what I do, because I know everyone's kind of sitting back at home. And if I can pull, fill that baseball void for, you know, just 15 minutes for someone, then I think that's a good use of my time. Yeah. Where where are you out of? Um, I'm, I'm in the southeastern United States. You know, I okay. grew up in, in Braves country and I haven't ventured far. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, I'm not in a, like a real coronavirus hotspot, so, uh, you know, th- things are definitely different out there, but it's not like I'm in, you know, one of these like densely populated cities like New York, or I'm not on, you know, in in Washington state or anything where it's kind of like, you know, where this all sort of began in the United States. So it's not too bad, but, uh, you know, the, the way the normal way of life has definitely changed no matter where you are in the country, I think, unless you really are in the true middle of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, so are you a Braves fan since you grew up in Braves country? Yeah, very much. I mean, I, you know, I was born, you know, in the mid 90s, you know, that was the Braves dynasty. They were, you know, they were in some ways, uh, you know, very popular nationally just because all of their games were broadcast uh, on TBS at that time. And they were, you know, in the middle of this uh, great division streak and they were in the playoffs every year. So that's that was kind of like the the you know the Braves fandom atmosphere that I that I grew up in and you know two diehard Braves fans parents so I I really can't remember a time when I wasn't a baseball fan or that I wasn't a Braves fan so it's the Braves and baseball have been a big part of my life just from the get-go yeah I mean I I my family grew up Braves fans um I kind of transitioned into a Tigers fan when I started realizing like what baseball was in the broader aspect just because I grew up near Justin Verlander and so watching him growing up kind of I just kind of became a Tigers fan and unfortunately it's hurt me ever since yeah Um, but I mean still knowing the guys like Smoltzy, Maddox, and Glavin um like I watched that zoom call that they did while watching the 95 World Series win uh I guess it was was it two days ago or yesterday I think it was two days ago um and Smoltzy had on the wig like you you love the personalities of those guys and how dominant they were during that time yeah, it was something special and, you know, in some ways something the likes of we'll probably never see again, just to have those three in a rotation. Uh, I will say that that is something that people say about the Braves a lot, and yet, you know, you just go back last year and for a moment there we had Justin Verlander, Zach Greinke, and Garrett Cole in the same rotation, so that's a pretty special combo too. It's not quite Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, and, you know, I think what made those guys special is that they stayed together for several years, but... Yeah, I mean, that was just, uh, it was a great time for baseball, to be honest. Even even in the middle of the steroid era, you had uh, a league where 
um, you had very clear stars and you had, um, you know, every franchise, you know, had, you know, sort of these, these faces, um, you know, that for, for marketing purposes, it's like, you know, you associate certain players with that time so easily, you know, you think of that time in baseball, you think about Pedro on the Red Sox, you think about, you know, some of those stacked Indian teams with, you know, guys like Kenny Lofton and Albert Bell, it just seems like, you know, there were, there was still really star driven league at that time. Yeah, I mean, I was watching some of that 95 World Series, and I feel like the Atlanta Braves lineup itself doesn't get talked about as much as the, obviously, the three-headed monster they had, but they had some, like, big-time names in that lineup. Young Chipper Jones, young Andrew Jones, uh, David Justice was an established star by that point. Mm-hmm. Brian Klesko. I don't think Tony Pendleton was on, was he on the 95 World Series team? I think. Don't believe so, but you know Brian Klesko was, and he he was raking at that time for the Braves. He was a he made as a huge difference maker for them. Um, so yeah, I've got I my first autograph that I ever got was Ryan Klesko, and I still cherish it to this day. Yeah, I mean he's a terrific ball player. Oh yeah, so let's let's start talking about your videos really quick. Um, me and well, Selden actually asked me before this about the graphics that you use, it's almost like an old time video game. It kind of explain us how you make that happen. Like it, it's actually really cool. Yeah. So I think when I started making those videos, you know, it was about um, kind of a technical limitation on my part. You know, I didn't, it was just kind of when you're only dealing with, you know, so many pixels and a really simplified kind of art style, a really simplified kind of visual style, it makes it easier for me. So, um, you know, it took me a while to kind of get the hang of, say, making sort of that pixel artwork you see for, you know, each baseball player I'm talking about. But over time, I've kind of developed that. And I think it was just very important to me to have uh, a very defined sort of aesthetic or design language from the get-go. I think the idea was that I wanted people to, you know, be able to mute the video and still know that I was the one who made it. And I, I think that's kind of how I've uh, still approach the videos today is that I want everything to sort of, you know, I want people to see the video and say, Hey, this feels like a foolish baseball video, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. That's I mean, perfect. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, cause it's pretty clear. Like when you turn on YouTube and you see the pixelated face that it's you, but something that's also intriguing to me is your writing process. And I know we talked to uh, five points vids about his writing process. He says it takes a couple days just to write an episode like what what goes into an average episode for you yeah i mean i just finished um concluding writing one uh you know yesterday so uh for me it it depends sort of how familiar i am with the subject so for some i may only have to research for like half a day or something like that to get you know all the stats i need all the you know make sure i get all the all the facts right uh, the one I'm working on right now took a little bit more than that. So I think I took about two days just researching alone. And then I'll take another day uh, to say outline it. And I think outlining has been uh, is really important for me to organize my thoughts uh, before I get into the video. So yeah, you know, I'm looking at, you know, one or two days of research, maybe a day to outline it, and then uh, usually a, a day to actually write it all. But by the time I'm writing it all, you know, I've done most of the most of the groundwork and, and then it comes pretty easily after that. Now, how often do you have these ideas for your videos? So like, um, like if something big happens, do you just write it down? And you're like, oh man, I've got like five videos already lined up to release. Like which one should I release now? Which one later, et cetera. So like what goes into that? 
Yeah, I mean, so for me, you know, my videos aren't super topical compared to um, what a lot of other, uh, you know, people are doing on baseball YouTube right now. You know, if, if some big news story breaks, you know, I don't necessarily have that feeling of, hey, I need to get to this right now. You know, it's very important to me that the videos I make are, um, and this is a phrase that I've only been familiar with for the past few months, but it's that they're evergreen. It's that you could go back and watch them at any time and um, still kind of, you know, feel like you're gaining something from it. Um, so, you know, the Astros video that, that I imagine we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, that was kind of different. That was really covering uh, a current event as, as it was unfolding. But otherwise, you know, for me personally, I'm trying to reach from from all years of baseball history. And um, so I can create things that people will still want to watch, you know, years after they come out. Um, but to some extent, I do have to remain uh, vigilant of, you know, where we're at in the calendar and where we are in the baseball year. So, for example, uh, this past offseason, I released a video, uh, you know, about Angleton Simmons Hall of Fame chances around the time that Hall of Fame voting results came out. You know, that wasn't a coincidence. So it's, a you know, it's about trying to, um, you know, keep people interested. Um, but at the same time, I do have to be cognizant of, you know, when exactly I do release the videos and, and plan the content accordingly. And that's what I love most about your videos is that you're able to take a guy that's not necessarily a big superstar and then break him down and be like, like for example, like Jeff Mathis, like Jeff Mathis on, on the surface just looks like a really terrible hitting catcher, but the dude stuck around forever. And, and in your video, you go into it because he's such a good receiver and whatnot. Uh, have you had a favorite player that you've profiled in one of your videos? Yeah, I would probably have to pick um, Tim LaCastro out of all of them. Um, that video was uh, kind of an unexpected success for me. It came off the heels of a time when I was doing videos uh, seemingly about a lot of the bigger names in baseball. Juan Soto, Steven Strasburg, Clayton Kershaw, uh, Mike Trout. I made videos about that summer and then that fall. I just kind of felt like, you know, Tim LaCastro had done something really, really interesting and I wanted to talk about it. And um, yeah, I, th I think probably out of all of those, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, more niche baseball players, those, you know, not you know, necessarily household name uh, guys that I've made videos about, I think Tim LaCastro would probably be my favorite. I think it probably best represents what I what I try to do with my channel as a whole. Yeah, I I love Jeff Mathis, Tim LaCastro, David Fletcher, all those kind of guys that you don't ever really hear about in the media, but you like as a true baseball fan, you un, you appreciate their their I guess quote unquote greatness. Obviously David Fletcher hasn't been in the league for long. Um but like I mean, a guy like David Fletcher, he strikes out little to none. I mean, he just makes contact with the ball so well and like so often that no one really appreciates it, but he can be a perennial 310, 320 hitter. And I mean, it's it, it's kind of cool in a lineup. With yeah, you know, for, for me, I think um, perhaps the thing that's most appealing about Fletcher is his defensive versatility as well. Uh, he can play seemingly plus defense at shortstop, second base, third base, left field. Now he, there's, he could possibly play some center field uh, in 2020. Um, particularly, you know, even if, if Trout struggles with staying healthy or they want to put him in the DH spot every now and then, I could see him in center for them. So, yeah, I think I think some of the infatuation with David Fletcher comes from the fact that he kind of plays like everyone did in Little League. 
I think that might be part of it. Like everyone remembers a time when they were a kid and they weren't so big and, you know, they, they didn't have much power, but, you know, maybe they were, you know, they could imagine themselves as sort of a scrappy guy just trying to put the bat on the ball. And, and that's kind of how David Fletcher plays in the major league. So in some ways he's, you know, he's much more relatable than a, than a superhuman, like his teammate Shroud or uh, Otani. And I think that's, that's where some of the infatuation with David Fletcher lies, but yeah, I'm a big fan of his. And I think, you know, when you look at championship type teams, a lot of times they, they do have a David Fletcher type, you know, it's a lot of these great teams have stars, but you know, you look at, you know, the Royals and the Cubs, you know, they had Zobrist and maybe, maybe that's what David Fletcher is. He's kind of a Ben Zobrist light, you know? Yeah. I mean, we actually had a trivia question about Zobrist the other day about how he has the Rays single season war record for the, uh, uh, like obviously for a position player. Yeah. And like, you don't understand how good Ben Zobrist is until, you actually look at his stats and his versatility at each position and how good he's been throughout the years. Um, but I actually want to keep on the angels train here uh, with Shohei Otani. So obviously Otani being a two way guy, he kind of brought back that Babe Ruth style. Um, and obviously he's not going to hit 60 home runs in a year, but uh, he's, I mean, he hits 30, uh, 35 homers and can throw a hundred. Do you think we're going to see that more often now as, as Otani becomes more prevalent in the league? Yeah. So I think, um, I think where we're at right now is like Otani is basically this like complete outlier, superhuman freak. Like I don't foresee guys coming up who throw, you know, a hundred miles per hour with, you know, who throw, you know, that, that anything like that devastating splitter he throws, um, you know, guys who are ace pitchers and middle of the order, middle of the order mashers. I don't; those guys just don't grow on trees. But I do think we are going to see more two-way players. But maybe just for utility purposes, you're going to see guys who maybe can throw, you know, 40, 50 innings a year and give you, you know, 150, 200 plate appearances. That's 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 less daunting and seemingly more much more possible than what Otani potentially offers at the moment. Keep in mind, he was only you know a starter and a and a uh, uh, hitter for for a couple months early in 2018 before uh, his elbow failed him. So we, we aren't even quite sure if Otani can shoulder being Otani over the course of a full season. But yeah, so I think we're definitely going to see like more players who hit and pitch. But as far as Otani types, where you have this guy who's in who's an ace and a middle of the middle of the lineup, you know, power bat. I I think that's that's still going to be an extremely rare skill set. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when Hunter Green got drafted and it almost seemed like he was going to be that guy that throws upper 90s and can just hit the absolute stew out of the ball. Um, but, I mean, obviously it hasn't really worked out so far. We never know if he'll make it up to the bigs or not. But um, I want to transition really quick to some recent MLB news, somewhat recently, so I guess it would be um, two weeks ago when this releases. Um the Red Sox punishments. What are your thoughts on on that with Alex Cora being suspended from for the season? The video guy being suspended. Obviously, they lost draft picks, etc. What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I thought you know it, we waited a long time for this, and it it does. We do have that feeling of like this was kind of a nothing burger. Like that's at least my perspective on it. So Cora was suspended, but he was suspended you know for his for what he did with Houston 
um, not what he did in Boston necessarily. And I think MLB was, you know, specified that, you know, this is what the punishment is for. I think probably the biggest problem that was revealed uh, in Boston was that you have this guy who is, um, who's working uh, in the replay room. Um, but he's also his, also his job description is he's kind of responsible, you know, and he's working in the replay room and he can, you know, communicate with, um, you know, guys in the dugout, but he's also responsible for decoding signs. And that's kind of where the conflict lies because then, you know, if he has, you know, if he realizes that the information that he gave to the Red Sox prior to the game is wrong, that the signs are wrong that he had, you know, does then, then the temptation to basically cheat, you know, you're watching it in the replay room live and then relay it back to the Red Sox is there, you know, that's the incentive. Otherwise, you know, in some ways he's not even really doing his job. So I think that's, that was probably the biggest problem that was revealed. But, you know, when you, when you look at it, this was not um, a scandal up to the scale of, of what, the Astros did it all. I don't think that the 2018 Red Sox, um, you know, World Series win is going to be viewed with the scrutiny that the 2017 Astros is. And, you know, look, the Red Sox, you know, that guy, um, you know, he he's suspended from his job. They have no Cora, but that was mostly no Cora because of the Astros. And they did lose that second round pick. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't think this was necessarily like a huge story that we were anticipating. And uh, I think, you know, the this is not going to distract from, from what the Astros did. I think the Astros still are kind of what the focus should be as far as this sign-stealing scandal goes. I love to hear that. I'm a Red Sox fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just my perspective. But, I, you know, the way I see it, I just don't – I just don't see this – it's it's just it's done you know this they took away the second round pick core is not going to manage them this year and then you know we can all kind of move on but the, what the astros did that's going to hang over their head for the next few seasons for sure yeah with the the whole trash can banging there was and the alleged buzzer using i mean mm-hmm. that's just a whole nother level of but just say what what the red sox were doing compared to what the astros with the the trash can were john boy's video I guess what he turned the sound up so you could actually hear the trash cans banging. And I remember seeing that on Twitter and I was like, Oh man, like this isn't going, this is not going to go well for Houston. Right. Like there's so many reasons. Like, you know, for example, the idea of this player involvement in Houston, you have, you know, seemingly pretty much, you know, everyone involved, uh, you know, the, the players themselves are banging the trash can. Um, you have, you know, obviously the, the biggest problem, which is um, that, the cheating is there for everyone to see. We can hear the trash can banging in the live broadcast and it's, it's pretty blatant. So, uh, you know, as long as the Red Sox kind of avoided that from an optics perspective as well, you know, we don't, you know, they, they did cheat, but you know, it's not like we, the viewer have any evidence at it going back and looking. Whereas with the Astros, if you, if you see someone, you know, if you hear someone banging the trash can and then the next pitch is a home run off a change up, you know, that, then it's easier to point your fingers and say, hey, those guys are, you know, those guys are cheating like really hardcore. Like, you know, this is kind of beyond the pale. And what I always thought was interesting when stuff started coming out that it seemed like it was a pretty well-known secret around baseball that the Astros were doing something. Right, yeah. So definitely like there were teams that were uh, suspicious, like teams were warning, you know, one another before they faced Houston in the playoffs that there might be shenanigans. You know, you have the Nationals, going into the Nationals went into 
the last World Series in 2019, knowing that Houston, you know, was would try to steal their signs and they were changing their signs very frequently and using, you know, very complex sign systems. And um, and, you know, there's also people in the media that that knew. Um, but, you know, until they had, you know, the full story, the full evidence until Farquhar and Mike Fires came out and talked, they, they couldn't really talk about it either. But like I remember, uh, you know, Saris from The Athletic said he knew, you know, back in 2017 or 18 about the trash can banging. They just weren't able to connect it and tell the full story yet. You know, I always wonder why that is. Like, would the MLB not let them, or like, because they couldn't connect it, but it almost seemed like everyone knew what was going on with that. Yeah, I. Well, it's interesting because it even goes back to like, you know, if you're talking about the, if there's a particular instance in the 2017 season that was the most publicized, you know, this past off season, it was when Farquhar was on the mound. And Farquhar himself even said, you know, basically Farquhar figured it out. You know, he heard the trash can banging and he had to, uh, you know, call a, a catcher, you know, meeting with his catcher on the mound to change up the signs, basically. And uh, he said, you know, if someone had come and talked to him after the game, he probably would have said everything. He probably would have said, I heard, you know, something banging in the dugout whenever, you know, an off-speed pitch was coming. So, yeah, it, it's just, it's it's a really weird story that it's kind of weird that it took this long to come out. But yeah, I think ultimately what you needed was, you know, someone on the inside to go on the record. In this case, that was Mike Fires, and then also, you know, someone like Farquhar who who had been uh, victimized by it. And so we've talked about this on some other episodes, like the the long term legacy of the players, like a Carlos Beltran or a Jose Altuve or an Alex Bregman or even like a Carlos Correa. Do you think this will ultimately down the road affect like a chance for the Hall of Fame because they were involved with this? I, I wonder that myself. Um, I've I kind of go back and forth on it. So there's a lot of people, particularly I think younger fans of the game, are I think um, in my experience they're a bit more forgiving of say the steroid users from the steroid era. Um, you know, certain they're they're a bit more forgiving of uh, sort of the atmosphere that that was in, and you know you may have older voters who are more concerned about protecting the sanctity of the game when it comes to Hall of Fame voting. So that's why you see kind of guys like you know Bonds and Clemens struggle to get past you know seventy percent, much less that seventy five percent needed for it to be inducted. And now what's happened with this Astro scandal in seventeen is now you have players cheating, but cheating in a different way, and and the fact that. Um, you know, for some young fans, they feel so deeply betrayed by these 2017 Astros, by all these players, and yet in the same breath, you know, have no problem advocating for, you know, certain steroid users to get in the Hall of Fame is kind of interesting to me. Um, obviously, these are different types of cheating, but it's it's still something to keep in mind. You know, that betrayal that they felt that they feel about the Astros is kind of similar to the betrayal that I felt, you know, when I was, you know, a younger baseball fan and you know, all this stuff was coming out and you had to worry about the Mitchell report, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm actually, actually don't think it's going to affect them as bad as people think they will. I think, you know, as time passes, these wounds heal. People don't feel the same way about Barry Bonds in 2020 as they did in 2005. They just don't. Um, and, uh, you know, Correa in particular got, you know, Altuve was in his prime. Correa was really young player. Bregman still has... A, you know, a huge career ahead of him as well. And then you look at Beltron, he's kind of on the other end. Well, Beltron, you know, he, he was he, on the field. He was not a huge factor for that team anyways. He had pretty much already had a Hall of Fame career before that. So, you know, I would hope it wouldn't because this was, it's clear to me that like 
Um, you know, this was this was an institutional level of cheating. You know, this wasn't just players. This was this was coaches. This was uh, you know um, management. This was, I mean, quite frankly, even the owner was in on it. I'm surprised Jim Grain did not have to sell the team. I think that's probably where. MLB missed the mark the most as far as their punishments was to not go after Crane in some way. So, you know, from my perspective, I would kind of hope that, you know, whenever these guys are up for Hall of Fame balloting, you know, if you look at someone like, you know, Correa or Bregman, that could be, you know, 20 years from now, um, time, time will pass. And, and the, the sting we feel now will, will be lessened, I imagine, in 20 years. That's not going to affect them as much as people are thinking it is now. No, I, I agree completely with that. Um, and my personal opinion on Bonds is I think he deserves to get in. Mm-hmm. I do I, too. I, I mean, the dude was just flat out the best hitter in baseball. Steroids or not, you still got to hit the baseball. Yeah, I, I agree as well. But I'm also sympathetic to to those who feel otherwise. Yeah, so I'm going to transition again here to actually a quick question that, we, that I didn't run uh, – run through with you uh, really quick before the episode. Um, if So thinking about the MJ documentary, have you watched any of that? Yes, I've been watching it. So if you could pick one season like that for a baseball team, so obviously mm-hmm. like their last dance, quote unquote, or just any season from any franchise, who would you pick? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, first kind of first thing that kind of jumps to mind is the 1947 Dodgers for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, you have uh, you know that's baseball's integrated. That's you know, it's probably the most important event in baseball history. You know, revolving around uh, what, what went on with that team. Um, you know, as far as maybe like a, you know like say a championship team. You know, a, a, you know maybe the you know, the idea of the last dance is that this is kind of the dying embers of a dynasty that they're all going to get together and do it one more time. Um, you know, maybe, maybe something like that on, um, the big red machine could be interesting to see. Uh, you know, that was a team with a lot of star power as well and a lot of interesting characters. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what kind of jumps to mind for me, those two. All right. Um, so we're going to go into our segment of position by position. Uh, talk about our first baseman, uh, the best all time today. And Bailey, I know you. I, I asked you to get your top five first baseman of all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so me and Shelly have ours. So we're going to start with our number fives, and then do our fours, threes, twos, etc. So, gotcha. who is your number five first baseman of all time? My number five first baseman of all time is Johnny Mize. Uh, Johnny Mize, I think, had a very, very underrated career. Um, he was one of those guys who who fell victim to, uh, you know, missing years due to military service. He missed uh, three seasons from 1943 to 1945, and that prevented him from accumulating a lot of the counting stats you would um, associate with, a, you know, an all-time great career at any position. Um, but, you know, this is a guy who hit 312, 397, 562 for his entire career. Um, every pretty much every year he played, he was one of the best hitters, if not the best hitter uh, in his respective league. He had a four-year stretch uh, from 1937 to 1940 where he OPSed over a thousand every season, and then he ended his career um, on the back. You know, he went and joined the Yankees late in his career in 1950 to 1953. His age 36 to age 40 seasons, they won the World Series 
1953 actually won five consecutive World Series to wrap up his career. So very accomplished player, very talented. Johnny Mize, the big cat, is going to be my number five. All right, Shelly. I don't know how to follow that up. Um, I'm going to tie it <laughs> my number five with Boo, Jimmy Boo, pick one. <laughs> I mean, well, you now go ahead. I, I really want to put Joey Votto in my top five. So, I I'm have a, so I have a tie with, with Joey Votto and Jimmy Fox. Uh, Jimmy Fox was an elite power hitter in the uh, from the 20s to the 40s with my beloved Boston Red Sox. Uh, the dude ended with 534 nukes, uh, 93.9 war. And, I mean, the dude was one of the most feared power hitters in baseball during his time. And then Joey Votto, the on-base king, just growing up watching him play, it's just been – I feel like I haven't appreciated it enough, especially now that it's looking like he's starting to decline. But that his prime was just different. The guy mm-hmm. was on some really, really bad Cincinnati Reds teams. It was always a bright spot. He was also – I mean, he was on some good ones as well. But the dude the, – the craziest stat was I think he never – I think he may have fouled like one or two balls into the stands. I don't know the exact number. I just remember hearing it on a broadcast when I was young. I was like, wow. Like this guy is different. Yeah, I, I whenever I think about Joey Votto, I always think about that stat that um, Jeremy Frank put out about uh, him popping up like less than three times uh, each of the last like nine years until this year. But like, I mean, I think he popped up more this past year than he did the past like seven years combined. I think that is correct. Yeah, it's unbelievable like his just his barrel control and just how easily he gets on base is beyond me um but my number five is half of Shelley's. uh i've got jimmy fox as well mm-hmm. um his 1932 season was just absolutely absurd um batting 364 with a 1218 ops and with 58 ding dongs and 169 rbis like that's just unbelievable and then one back-to-back mvps in 32 and 33 so, um, yeah, obviously a very well-rounded power hitter of all time playing for the Philadelphia Athletics. And that, so that's my number five. All right. So we're going to move on to my number four now. Is that how this yep. works? Yep. Okay. Gotcha. My number four is going to be the big hurt, Frank Thomas. Frank Thomas is going to be uh, my number four pick. Um, to be fair, he was he did DH more than he played first base. So depending on kind of how you – uh, view it, you know, you can make the argument that, that Frank Thomas is not a first baseman, but he played, you know, 971 games at first base, over 8,000 innings. So uh, for me, that was enough to qualify him for this list. But depending on your standards, uh, you know, no problem. Uh, Frank Thomas is my pick. He was a back-to-back MVP 1993, 1994. His 1994 was one of many, I think, incredible seasons that were uh, kind of cut short due to the strike. You know, Jeff Bagwell's another good example of someone like that. Although Jeff Bagwell had just gotten hurt, my bad. So technically, the, Frank Thomas is a better example. Uh, in 1994, before the season ended, Frank Thomas was hitting 353 with a 487 uh, on base percentage and a 729 slugging percentage. Uh, it's an OPS plus of 212 to end the year, and that was that was his second consecutive MVP at the time. Uh, just an incredible hitter, um, you know, a 300, 400, 500 final career triple slash guy. Just one of the best hitters I've ever seen. Just a, an absolute freak athlete. Um, you know, obviously the defense was nothing to write home about. He was kind of, he's just kind of a big lumbering guy, but, uh, I think what makes Frank Thomas really special compared to some of the other 
you know, big power hitters, big 500 home run hitting guys was just his uh, plate discipline and his ability to hit for average. He was just a really well-rounded hitter. And uh, so he's going to be number four for me. All right. Shelly? Yeah, first base is, is such a weird position to, to rank because a lot of guys, when they get old, they, they'll just throw them at first base. And mm-hmm. you can't really evaluate a, a first baseman off of just his glove. But I've got another guy that switched over to first base, Miguel Cabrera at my number four. I guess he could also be considered a third baseman, but I'm, I'm going to say he's a first baseman in this case. Um, obviously, the triple crown in 2012 was ridiculous. But the year he had after that in 2013 – where he had an OPS of 1.078, batted 348, which is better than the year before, hit as many home runs. And it was, I mean, he was considered with Albert Pools the best right handed hitter of this generation of baseball. Mm. I mean, the dude was just, I mean, he was ridiculous from 09 to 2016, was an absolute unprecedented level of dominance that he had. Yeah, I, uh, as a Tigers fan, I can't make this list without putting Miggy on there. And so he's also my number four uh, between 2005 and 2016 had one year batting below 300, um, which is astonishing to me um, because of the age that we're in where everybody just tries to uh, drop and drive the launch angle and all that stuff. And so, I mean, Miggy was able to do it hitting 30 home runs a year while batting. I mean, three, he had his three straight seasons between 2011 and 2013 uh, batted 344, 330, and then 348. Um, obviously won the triple crown in there. And then, I mean, he had two, he had back-to-back MVPs. And so Miggy watching him growing up is, is definitely a, a treasure. So, uh, Miggy is my number four. I think that's a, a terrific pick for both of you. He, Miggy did not make my list, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's fair to say that you could definitely make the argument for him you know, top five first baseman all time. He's just, he's been this generationally talented hitter, as you put it, great way of putting it, you know, him and, uh, you know, just one of the best right-handed hitters uh, the game has seen in the past uh, 20 years or so. For sure. All right, number threes. All right, so uh, my number three, uh, you know, we've kind of already been over him, but my number three was Jimmy Fox. Um, I, you know, I won't, you guys pretty much said it all. Um, I will say in regards to his 1932 season, uh, when he hit 58 home runs, that one stands out to me a lot, um, particularly because, you know, in the in the decades following Ruth hitting 60, 60 was sort of this like insurmountable number until Roger Maris seemingly. And I, you know, if, if Fox had managed to hit just two or three more home runs in 1932, I think it would have massively changed the way we view both Jimmy Fox and Babe Ruth. You know, Babe Ruth was seen as this guy doing sort of impossible things. And yet here's Jimmy Fox really not long after hitting 58 and almost almost reaching that level that Ruth was in terms of home runs in a single season. So Jimmy Fox also a three-time MVP. So yeah, Jimmy Fox is going to be my, my number three for first baseman. All right. So I've got my number three is Stan the Man Musial from the St. Louis Cardinals. Probably, I mean, I guess besides Albert Pools, all-time great Cardinal, uh, played 22 seasons in the majors. Had a 128.3 career war. Even I don't believe he played in 1945, but that didn't really matter because the dude pretty much produced his entire career. And, yeah, won three MVPs. Finished with a career OPS at 976, so stand the man. All right. Um, I actually had 
Musial at first, and then uh, at the re-looking at it, I think I'm going to put him in my outfield um, because he was he actually played more games at outfield than he did first base. So I'm actually going to take him off my first base list and put Hank Greenberg in there. Good uh, pick. Green- yeah, Greenberg only played for 13 years because he went into the Air Force, but he in his first or it's from 1933 to 1940. Yeah, 1940, he batted over 300 in all those years. Um, including a 58 home run year in 1938, 41 in 1940, and 36 and 40 and 35. And so um, Hank Greenberg is my number three, another Tiger. All right. I like both those picks. Uh, you know, Musial, I didn't, you know, this is, you've kind of pointed out uh, a contradiction within my own rankings. You know, it is true that Musial played more outfield than first base, but also he played about as much first base as Frank Thomas did. So, you know, for <laughs> me to have Thomas on my list and not Musial, now you've realized, you know, you pointed out a flaw in my thinking. So uh, that's good. That That's good. And that means that we'll be talking about more players. You know, this, this wouldn't be interesting if all our lists were completely identical. So uh, we're going to be moving on here to my number two, I believe. And uh, for my number two, I'm going to pick a guy that I feel like Hopefully at least one of you put it number one. And so I, the reason I wanted to put him at number two was kind of just to, you know, start a maybe an interesting conversation. Uh, my number two is Lou Gehrig, the iron horse. Um, you know, one of the most famous players in baseball history, his career was uh, tragically cut short due to ALS, uh, which, you know, uh, co- you know, commonly, at least until a few years ago was basically only known by the general public as Lou Gehrig disease. Um, Lou Gehrig was just an incredible ball player. There's really no way to put it. Um, he, in, in a time when you had, um, you know, Ruth was this terrific player, but he was kind of kind of a wild guy. And but but Gehrig was very well put together, and the two of them didn't always get along. But but Lou Gehrig was just kind of like this, you know, all American kind of good guy. Everyone really uh, admired him and spoke highly of his character. Um, yeah, I you know Gehrig, you look, I'm looking at his baseball reference page now. There's like 11 years of a thousand OPS, and most of them are 1100. He's got a 1200 in there too. Uh, it's just it's kind of insane what he did and you know 10 win 11 win seasons he's just a freak and um, another really cool thing you know maybe I can send it to you guys after the show there's this old footage of Lou Gehrig trying to leg out a double um, and he does get thrown out but he is he was fast too in his prime when he was young too so he was just an altogether you know terrific athlete one of the greatest players to ever touch the game but he is my number two yeah I mean Gehrig had 20 uh, 20 triples in 1926 so I mean, just to show you how how impressive his speed was, along with his power, it's it, it's pretty cool to see. Um, but I'm actually surprised you put him at number two. So I'm, I'm thinking we can all we can guess your number one because I think it's me and Shelly's number two. Okay, but, yeah. Uh, Shelly, go ahead. Actually, my number two is Lou Gehrig as well. Really? Oh. Yeah. Wow. Um, all right. I mean, yeah. Bailey just said it all. I'm also. I mean. Just the lasting impact that Lou Gehrig has had too has been, I mean, obviously the the longevity. Never really missed a game in his entire career until he got ALS. I mean, the dude was just an absolute beast, and I, he kind of was in Root's shadow, but I feel like he deserves to stand by himself. Yeah, I mean, sweet Lou Gehrig is. I mean, he is a generational guy that, I mean, even passed on from generations. Like we all look at him and never got to watch him play. But I mean, you don't have much footage of those, of those times, 
like you just know that he was that dude. Like he was the Mike Trout, or like him and Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth. Like they they were the Mike Trouts of their of their generation. And so um, obviously Lou Gehrig is a good choice, but he's gonna be my number one because I've got Albert Pujols as number two. Um, so Albert Pujols is what I would consider the, I guess the step up from Miguel Cabrera. Um, obviously 656 home runs, but, uh, batted 300, a uh, hundred career war in 19 years of playing. And I mean, just the consistency from Pujols until about 2016 was unfathomable. Um, his, his years from 2001 to 2010, uh, only had two years where he didn't have an OPS over a thousand, won three MVPs and was in the MVP race from 2001 to 2012 in some capacity. So, um, Pujols is my number two and, uh, and I guess y'all have a, have a common number one. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of try to make my case for, uh, Pujols really quickly at number one for me. Um, you know, the num- it's hard to compare the numbers just because, you know, we're talking about completely different eras of baseball. We're talking about, I think, probably most importantly, completely different levels of competition, you know. So if you look at it purely from, like, say, an OPS plus perspective, Gehrig's at a 179 for his career and Pujols is at a 147. So those aren't really comparable. But, you know, obviously Pujols is playing, you know, post-integration with, you know, all these great modern athletes. Uh, one thing that did stand out did stand out for me for Pujols over Gehrig was the fact that Pujols led uh, his league in war five times in his career during his prime. Uh, and Lou Gehrig did that just once. You know, you look at it early in his career, that's probably, you know, second place to Ruth a couple times. And then probably later in his career, that's probably second place to Fox. Um, so, you know, Pujols really just dominated uh, his his prime, his era of baseball in a way that Gehrig didn't quite do. Uh, another thing is that, you know, you look at, Gehrig, you know, basically he was done after age 35. He played six games in his age 36 season. But then if you took Pujols' stats through that, you know, his counting stats, he'd have, you know, a similar number of hits, more home runs. And then at the end of the day, I think it just comes down to me as well. Just, you know, Pujols was, is probably the second best defensive second baseman of all time. I think only maybe like, like a Keith Hernandez is who I would put ahead of him. So Pujols, you know, was just this complete player, you know, the first, you know, 2001 to 2011, that stretch with the with the Cardinals is just absolutely ludicrous. Uh, so I, I would actually put him as my number one over Gehrig. Yeah, I mean, that stretch from 2003 to 2009 in terms of war had over an 8.4 war in each of those seasons, including two seasons of over nine war. It's just stupid how good he was. But all right, Shelly, you're number one. My number one? The machine, Albert Pujols, don't really have much to say. I think Bailey just covered pretty much all of it. But when he broke into the league, I mean, it was clear that he belonged from from the get go. He had the, he had the the stick as well as the glove too, and uh, he's just hard not to like Albert Pujols. He's just a great guy off the, off the field too. Obviously, off the field doesn't necessarily go into this list, but like he's just such a likable baseball player, you know. I'm just trying to figure out some some other way to boost the case for Albert Pools being number one, but th- that stretch from 01 to 10 was ridiculous. Yep, ridiculous. and um, obviously I've got Lou Gehrig as my number one. I mean, his, his excellence I think could have gone on 
if if he had stayed in the league uh, instead and not had gotten sick. But I think I think Lou Gehrig is is what I would pick out of a prototypical or I guess a five tool baseball player at first base. Like Pujols, he was slow. Um, never really had the speed to compare to Lou Gehrig. So I think that's kind of my overarching there. Um, even though Lou Gehrig had batted well over 300 while Pujols only batted 300 for his career. Um, obviously less homers, but I mean, more career war in less seasons. And I, I don't know. I, I just think Lou Gehrig is, when I think of the best first baseman of all time, I've, I've got Lou Gehrig up there. Yeah, and I think most people would agree with you. You know, And I even when I was making this list, I kind of went back and forth and ultimately just kind of decided to choose Pujols because I figured at least one of you would choose Gehrig anyway. So we just wanted to kind of get all our bases covered. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good to have a difference of opinions here because obviously, like you said, it would be boring if we didn't. Um, and so having... Having, I guess, two different opinions since uh, y'all two both had Pujols at number one and I had Garrick at number one, it makes for an interesting conversation because those two guys are pretty much interchangeable. Um, and then, I mean, I think if Miggy had, had, could have stayed healthy, I think he could have been up there as well. So, I mean, it's always a fun conversation, though. First base is such a stacked position. It is, but also, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it is – kind of a weird one to rank too. And I think that's kind of what made this exercise fun. You know, you have, you know, who is a first baseman? Some guys are first baseman slash DH types like Frank Thomas. A lot of guys end up playing there, you know, later in their career anyways. You know, I have guys like, you know, I'm sure Pete Rose played a lot of first base. I know Johnny Bench played some first base. So, um, you know, you have, it was kind of a fun exercise. So I'm glad we did it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but that's, that's all we got time for today. Uh, Bailey, thanks for coming on and, and taking your time to be with us. Hey, no problem, guys. All right, so make sure you all check out this episode of the Third Base Dugout. Make sure you check out some past episodes. Obviously, you uh, hopefully you'll have listened to the Pitching Ninja interview from last week. But make sure you keep listening and subscribe to uh, Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Dorm Room Sports on, on YouTube as well as Foolish Baseball on YouTube. And make sure you follow, follow Bailey on Twitter at Foolish Baseball. So, again, Bailey, thanks for coming on, and we will see you all next week. All right. Take care. Won't you follow me into the jungle?